All right. So I want to read for you really what is the text for tonight, but I'm really going to just reference it in pieces along the way. But I wanted to get the whole thing in your ear before we really dig in. So, And this is from Hebrews. By the way, we're picking back up with the Hebrews series. So Hebrews 10, 11 through 25. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. By the way, we're going all the way back to the Old Testament priests. By when this priest, but when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. God is transcendent. I talked about that a little bit during communion. God is transcendent. But there's a, there's a qualification to that. While He's transcendent, He is personal. God is beyond us. Way beyond us. Don't think distance, but just like beyond us to really even wrap our minds around. Anybody who thinks that they have God, like, figured out? (laughs) No. No. He's beyond us. But He's not far from us. He's not far from us. As we talked about during Christmas, God wants us to know Him as Emmanuel. God with us. We worship God as the creator of all that is seen and unseen. In other words, we worship a God who has created stuff that we don't even know exists. (laughs) That's kind of big, right? He is the one who was before everything that's been made. He is not subject to his creation, but rather his creation is subject to him. He's the one that made it. He's the one that made you. He's the one that made the earth, everything that's in and everything, again, that is seen and unseen. Creation relies on God for its existence. You, whether you know it or not, whether you've known it or not, rely on God for your existence, the air you breathe. 
the water you drink, the food you eat, every bit of it. We rely on God for our existence. He, however, does not rely on anything for his existence. He does not rely on food or air or water or any made thing. God doesn't, doesn't need anything to survive. That's kind of hard just to wrap our minds around that. <clears throat> he is self-existing and self-sustaining. He, in revealing himself to Israel, particularly to begin with to Moses, describes himself as Yahweh. The great, I am who I am and I will be who I will be. That's a great name for this transcendent God, isn't it? Who should I tell them sent me, Moses asks, and he says, God being, tell them I am who I am and I will be who I will be, sent you. (laughs) Okay, I'll I'll go for that. (laughs) Or you could just say Yahweh. He is the great I am who I am and I will be who I will be. God is just simply beyond us. I think that's part of what God is saying there. I really can't even describe to you exactly who I am because I think maybe your brain would explode. (laughs) 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 I am beyond you, God says. However, the scriptures reveal that this transcendent I am who I am and I will be who I will be beyond us. God is one who freely chooses to be with his people. And that while he is above all, he shows us that being above all does not mean that he takes advantage of or exploits his creation, but rather his power, his above allness, his transcendence is displayed in his creation as he upholds it, encourages it, works with it, loves it, forgives it, walks with it, sustains it. That's what this God who is the great I am, who I am, will be, who I will be, transcendent one is like. He cares about us. He's faithful to the things that his hands have made. Our God, our transcendent I am who I will, I am who I am and I will be who I will be, Yahweh, our creator, is also, and this is, just blows me away when I stop and think about it, he's a covenant maker. He makes covenants with people. This is one way we see God's personal involvement with his creation. He makes covenants with individuals and with groups of people. Actually, when he makes covenants with individuals, it usually has something to do with groups of people nonetheless. A covenant just simply is an agreement made between two parties. Two parties who, through the agreement, have become bound together. Isn't that kind of weird to think about God doing that? Like he's so involved with his creation that he he binds us together with him. The language of covenant, biblically speaking is very personal. I think oftentimes we hear the covenant language and we hear the idea of a covenant and we just kind of think of something extremely legal or sterile or some paperwork. You got to sit down and you got to sign. You got this new contract, this new covenant that you're going to sign. You're going to do this thing. And as soon as you sign it, you kind of walk away from it and you don't maybe remember it all that much, right? But it's totally different in this biblical context. I... I kind of alluded to this, maybe more than alluded to it during communion. But the biblical terminology of covenant is intimate. The language is actually taken from context of table fellowship. 
All the Old Testament Hebrew word groupings have in mind this idea of shared time together, of establishing a relationship together. It's not just some kind of legal binding contract. It's actually a connection of two people agreeing to share life together, shared with a, with a meal. I'm reminded right here, and it's not in my notes, of Abraham being and Sarah being visited by God. And when he comes among them, Abraham offers them some hospitality in washing their feet. And then he invites them to have a meal together. God shows up, this one who he has made a covenant with, Abraham, and Abraham invites him to share a meal together. I think we just gloss over meals. Well, maybe not a gathering. <laughs> we are good at eating around here. But there's something personal that happens. When you start... Sharing food together, you start sharing a table together. Oh my goodness. They say that a way to a man's heart is through his stomach, but I think that's just a way to anybody's heart to some degree. When we start sharing those meals together, that time together, that intimacy together, it's profound. And I find it profound that this transcendent creator, Yahweh, makes those kinds of agreements with us, those kinds of contracts with us. He makes agreement. Agreements with his creation. In other words, the God who is beyond us chooses to bind himself in intimate fellowship through covenants. And he is faithful to us. The very people he has made. Truly, this transcendent God is Emmanuel. He is the God who is with us and wants us to see us with him and him with us. At the very heart of every covenant God establishes with people is a really simple message. You can, every single covenant that's made has this at its heart. I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a good covenant. Simple. Straight to the point. It's easy, right? God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be faithful to you. You be faithful to me. And God's covenants are always established on grace. It's always about grace. The people are like never like deserving recipients of God's covenants, right? It's not like God is like, hey, those folks are doing pretty good. They're pretty good looking. They got it going on, man. I think I'm going to go in covenant with them. <laughs> I think I can make it some way with these folks. I mean, do you, you look at the kind of people that God makes covenants with? Abraham, right? The first. What? Just nuts, right? It's crazy. Well, actually, there was one before that, but a couple before that. But the first major huge kind of deal was with Abraham. And the guy is just a scoundrel, a hoodlum, right? He can't seem to get anything right. That's the kind of people that God chooses, so relax. <laughs> oh, we're all right. <laughs> Maybe God has made a covenant with us. He has. It's always based on God's grace. It's not based on anything else. When, when God and people make these agreements, though, when like God says, I'll tell you what, I'll make a covenant with you. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Like he follows it with some instruction. 
Like, he doesn't expect that we're just going to go on doing the things just like we were doing them the whole time before we came into that covenant. They're followed with instructions on how to be. That's nice, right? That God would do that? How to be a person of God. Like, if he's going to hold us to some kind of expectations and standards, it's just kind of nice to know what those expectations are, right? So, like in the Mosaic Covenant... God, for no seeming particular reason, chooses Israel to save them as they're crying. Save us, we're like being exploited by Pharaoh. And God chooses them and he draws them and saves them out of Egypt. And he makes this covenant with them through Moses. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. It's established on that grace of God just choosing these people, not because they had it going on. Probably the opposite. Because all they do is grumble and complain and grumble and complain. But following that, God establishes what his expectations are for these people of God who have agreed, okay, you'll be our God, we'll be your people. You guys know what those are? Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. They are to be holy like God is holy. If you go through those Ten Commandments, which we're doing on Thursday nights, just recently we've gone, I think we're finished with them now, but we're at that part in Exodus, we discover that they're radically shifting expectations of how people are to live with one another. God is doing something incredible in the midst of people. We're not going to dig in too much at all. Well, maybe not too much at all with the Ten Commandments in particular, but... After God gives them, after he establishes this covenant, I'll be your God, you be my people. He gives them the Ten Commandments and there's a a huge problem right away. Almost immediately there's a problem. Well, God is faithful. The people are not. It seems that we have a problem, a deeply rooted problem, a sort of a disease, if you will. A cancer in our souls that seeks to destroy us slowly and painfully. It's, it's called sin. Three little letters. It's our rebelliousness. A desire to be our own God. To call our own shots. It seems the more God instructs his people on how to be his people, the more rebellious we become. God's instructions to his people through the Mosaic Covenant is met almost immediately with disobedience. Number one. You guys remember what that one is? You shall have no other gods before me. And it seems like as soon as God says that, they're like, hey, let's go make a golden calf and worship it. Sounds like a great idea. Right? It's number one. How do you miss number one? You just gloss over number one? You don't want to... Sorry, I didn't quite hear you there. I wasn't ready yet. You didn't say, hold on, I'm starting with number one. No. Number one. They can't even get number one right. You shall have no other gods before me. Moses leaves. Aaron's like, hey, let's make a golden calf. I don't think Moses is coming back at this Yahweh guy. I think he's left. So I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Whatever. He's gone. Let's make a golden calf and let's worship that. Number one, they can't even keep it. It's... It's, I think, on display for every parent in the room. It's a microcosm that we see, or we see a microcosm of this in our children. It's like we say to our kids, (laughs) I see parents laughing, I'll be your parent, and you be my child. (laughs) And here's the deal. Do that, and don't do that. 
And as soon as the words are out of our mouth, the kid's like, oh, that gives me a great idea. (laughs) Now that you mention it, I think I will hit my brother. (laughs) Hadn't crossed my mind before. (laughs) So in Hebrews 8, 9, which I didn't read for us earlier, but I'll read part of it now. We are told that that God actually turns away from his covenant people because of their disobedience. Because, it says, they did not remain faithful to my covenant, I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This being those folks that he delivered out of Egypt, who agreed to be their people if he was their God. They turned away from him, he turns away from them. However, God is gracious. He's not turning away forever, just as the love for a child does not end just because the child is disobedient in one moment or many moments. So too, God's love does not end with his, when his covenant children are disobedient. And because of his great faithfulness, because of his great love, his chesed covenant love, and because of his grace, God has a plan. God always has a plan. He is transcendent, you know. (laughs) A new covenant. A new covenant. New, that sounds good, right? Who doesn't like new? Some people don't like new. A new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33, the prophet. He proclaims this. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is what we have in Jesus. This new covenant. It's not like the old covenant. It's different. And it's not different because it doesn't have expectations of us. This new covenant doesn't say, I will be your God and you can just do whatever you want to. Right? The new covenant says it's the same. It's the same phraseology. I will be your God. You'll be my people. What's different is that God says he's going to write the law on our hearts. And on our minds. As with all covenants, this one too is established on grace. 10.17, the writer of Hebrews states, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Grace has always been at play. I can't drive that point home enough. With God, with this God who loves his creation, grace has always been there. I mean, the psalm that I read earlier, 19, he talks about being forgiven by God. And he talks about how awesome and sweet the Torah is, the law. The Old Testament instructions for God's people. He doesn't say they're horribly ugly or nasty or anything like that or impossible to keep. He says they're beautiful and they keep you from stumbling. They give you life. But again, what makes this covenant different is through this covenant, we are changed. Our hearts, our minds are transformed. 
In this new covenant, God gives us a renewed heart and mind. The problem with the old covenant was not the terms of the covenant or even the content of the covenant. Nor was it too hard. Nor was it lacking grace. Again, the problem is with our hearts and minds, the hearts and minds of people. Speaking of the Old Testament covenant, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8, 7, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. The problem again is not with the covenant or the covenant maker. The problem is with people. The problem is with us. And through this new covenant that God has established through His Son, our Lord Jesus, God is doing a super deep work in us. He's taking an old stony heart and making it tender. God's law has always been about love. Just ask Jesus. We'll get back to that in a second. Just asking Jesus about the law. The prophet Ezekiel puts this whole idea this way. This new covenant promise he talks about in chapter 36, 26. Ezekiel says concerning what God will do, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. <coughs> that new heart is available now to change your life today. <coughs> I don't remember if I said this up front, but this is the point of the message where I have a slight excursus. I often hear conversations about Christianity today as having primarily to do with being forgiven and going to heaven and not going to hell. I think it's pop culture Christianity. I think it's a huge mistake. And I want to quote Raymond Brown, who writes in an essay on the New Testament. Jesus speaks of heaven and he speaks of hell, but rarely and without detail. If you don't think that's true, go and read it. He doesn't speak much about hell. His concern is the knowing and loving and serving of God in this life. The things that we do now, today, what you're doing with your time, what you're doing with your thoughts, what you're doing with your heart, that's what God is concerned with. That's what the Son has come to transform. The Son became incarnate to teach men how to live a life in this world and not primarily to unveil the secrets of the next. Christianity is about life after death. However, that life after death begins now. After you die to yourself and receive the gift of a new heart and a new spirit. After having the law written on your heart and on your mind. It starts now. We don't just circle the wagons and party it up or become all paranoid until we die. God calls us to make a difference. 
now, today. Of course, this is taking that deep work where we allow God to transform our inmost being. And that happens through that new spirit he gives us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Who gives us that newfound capacity within this new covenant to become growingly obedient to the law. Ooh. Ooh. Some good Lutherans sitting out, well, including myself. Um, I have to swallow hard on that one. We've got to talk about that for a second. What about this law that is written on our hearts and minds? What is the law? Is it just another set of rules or an old set of rules to follow? No, it's not. I've already alluded to what it is, and it's a point that I repeat over and over and over and over again in this community. The law we are called to live is at its heart what the Old Testament law was about all along. It is what was always God's motivation with giving the law and giving the prophets to begin with. The law written on our hearts, the law that we are given a newfound capacity to keep, it's the royal law, the law of love, the law that, as Jesus says, sums up the law and the prophets. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But it takes a new heart to live this. It takes a new mind to live this. It takes a new spirit to live this. It takes allowing God to draw near to us. It requires us to be challenged to ourselves draw near to God. It's a law that requires us to consider different actions in different situations. It's a law that doesn't come with a flow chart. There's no rule book, and it can't be systematized. As soon as we turn God's perfect law of love into that, we've lost it. Because now all of a sudden, I'm not so concerned with my neighbor. I'm just concerned with keeping a big, long set of rules. But has anybody ever had that work and you applied to your own life? Has anybody just brought up a set of rules and you're trying to figure out how to deal with a situation of brokenness or any difficult experience you've had in your life? Is there just a, a flow chart that allows you to navigate your way through that where there's just easy answers? It never works that way. <laughs> it's a law that requires us to consider, again, different actions in different situations. There are so many times in this church context where I will experience people in the same exact conundrum. But how you deal with each one of them is different. For some, you might come to them and you might challenge them greatly. And you might say, you know what? It's really time for you to put on your big boy pants and get going here. And then there's other times when if you said that, you would never see the person again. Because <laughs> they don't like big boy pants. <laughs> that kind of creeps them out to say something like that. <laughs> we have to be about love. You can't just say, you broke the rules, I'm sorry. 
There's not a flow chart for love. Even our two boys, Noah and Luca, they could do the same exact thing. But how we discipline one of them in love is different than how we would discipline the other in the same love. Because they're two different boys. God made them unique. (laughs) Pretty unique. They take after cat. (laughs) That's why God has given us that new heart. So that we can concern ourselves with actually loving people. So we can actually get involved in a relationship with people where we get to know them and realize not everybody is the same. Some people need to be treated with great gentleness in a circumstance. And other people need a kick in the pants sometimes. I'm the kick in the pants neater, usually. Not really. Well, maybe. Sometimes. This law of love is a law that should govern all of our decisions. In this world, we're learning to deny ourselves and surrender to his law of love. This law that God has written on our hearts. We're learning to do that. It's a process. If anybody would want to try and tell you that it's not, I'd like to talk with that person. Has anybody like had that not be a process in their lives where all of a sudden you just have this amazing capacity to love the most difficult of people without any problem at all? Anybody? Anybody? No, nobody? Nobody's raising their hand. Come on, somebody. No. Yeah, no, it's impossible. It's a process. It's a journey. It's a journey of recognizing that we're all the covenant people of God together. We're all brought into that covenant by God's grace. And we're all learning to surrender ourselves to the Spirit's work in our lives. So I just want to talk for a brief moment. What does that process look like? What does that process of constantly surrender, dying to ourselves, and living by the Spirit who calls us to love? I don't know. It looks like constant surrender. Constantly just seeking for God to instruct what we're going to do. Looks like constantly asking God to guide us in the moment. Not just in big decisions, but in every little decision. Maybe not so much whether or not I'm going to have ketchup on my meatloaf, but how how to be in relationship with people. How to love my kids, how to love my wife, constantly asking God to lead me and guide me and be faithful in that, and to walk with me when I fail. It requires us to, in this process, remember to ask some questions about other people. A really simple one, maybe. Like, well, if I was them, what would I want done to me? It's a simple question. It's really hard to remember to ask it sometimes, though. We get so caught up and busy in our day-to-day lives that we don't stop to ask maybe what's going on in somebody else's life, what they might need. It requires constant repentance. Remembering where we came from and how easily we can 
wander off. You know, even though God's doing this thing of writing His law in our hearts, His law of love, and putting a new heart in us, it is that process, and we still have that old heart, crusty and crudgy and broken and calloused, and it is still in there. Simultaneous, they're both there together. And we need to live that life of repentance that wants to return to living out of the Spirit's doing in our lives, the Spirit's guiding in our lives, that tender-heartedness that we, that we should desire. And it requires us to constantly spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's what I love about this community, this gathered church community. It's like, it's a gentle spurring, you know. It's not like, let's go! I don't know, maybe it is sometimes. But But there's an awful lot of cheering. There's an awful lot of encouraging going on. I see it all over the place. I see people, and I hope that you experience it. I hope you feel appreciated in this community. I see people all the time saying, oh my goodness, that was amazing. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for cooking. Thank you for cleaning. Thank you for serving. Thank you for going down to the cold weather shelter. Thank you for what you do. If you haven't heard it enough, hear it now. It makes a difference. The good things that we do for the kingdom of God make a difference. They do. You might not even get a chance to see it, or you might be so close to it that you can't quite capture it. But it makes a difference. When we participate with the kingdom of God... When we participate with the things that God is doing in our world, when we let God have control of our lives, when we let our hearts be softened, and we learn to be compassionate for others, those things make a difference. Be encouraged and be challenged. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I don't do anything around here. It doesn't have to be around here. Someplace. Serve somebody. Love somebody. Give of yourself. Be a good steward of your gifts and talents. One last thing that I'm troubled, and I'm speaking to the choir here, but I'm troubled by the lack of this last one. In order to, in order to live in this covenant relationship with our God and allow God to soften our hearts and to work on us and to write His law of love on our hearts in order to have that process happen, we need to meet together. We can't do it alone. We can't. I'm really troubled by a trend in our country of people that are just teaching and telling everyone that, no, it's fine. I can have my own relationship with God and go off and do my own thing and, you know, it's just me and God out in the wilderness someplace and it's all good. Yeah, BS. It's not, you can do that. You could do that. that you, you, it's possible, I suppose, and you can have those mountaintop kind of experiences, but they're not about that. They're about a shared life together. What's the point and purpose of a relationship with God? If you think it's just, if, if somebody thinks, I don't say you, if, you, if a person thinks it's just about them and God and it doesn't involve anybody else, they're deceived. They are. We cannot do it by ourselves. We are the people of God. I'm not the person of God. You're not the person of God. We are the people of God together. And He is working amongst us, not just amongst me. Not just amongst you. I'll tell you honestly, if it wasn't for the community, if it wasn't for the people of God as a whole, I wouldn't do diddly jack. I like riding my bike. 
It's a very spiritual experience. I can ride up into the middle of nowhere, ride 100 miles someplace out into the middle of nowhere, and have this great experience with God. But does my life matter when I do that? Does it really matter? Does it make any difference if I have the most wonderful mountaintop experiences, but I don't know how to love out of my heart? I don't surrender to God and allow Him to change me, transform me, and use me. That other people, that my need to experience this transcendent one who comes amongst us and makes a covenant with us, if we are not doing that, we're spinning our wheels. We're wasting our time. And as the writer of Hebrews says, we cannot give up meeting together. Because when we are together, God is here in a way that He isn't here when we're not together. And He transforms and changes lives in a way that He doesn't do anywhere else. And He uses us to display His love and His faithfulness in our community. So, Y'all, y'all people of God, covenant people of God, people who have responded to God's cry, hey, how about this? I'll be your God. Y'all be my people. And I'll tell you what I'll do, God says. I'll give you a new heart. I'll teach you how to love. I'll write my law on your heart, and it goes something like this. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. I'll put my spirit in you. And I'll show you how to do it. That's who y'all are. Amen.